What's up, folks? Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Lamet, the founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. This is a big theme right now, COVID-19. Unfortunately, we're seeing a second wave, maybe a third wave, depending on how you look at it. And we've got world-renowned COVID-19 expert, Dr. Nicholas Christakis. He returns to share everything you need to know about this new wave, the vaccines, and how long it's going to take until things return to normal. Nicholas joined us in March, episode 66, to really predict a lot of what's played out with COVID-19. I mean, it's not surprising. He's dedicated his life's work to understanding public health, disease, and how pandemics shape our world. So there's no surprise that he's been on top of this. Uh, But it's pretty amazing just to see how it's played out. And this conversation was really, really insightful. Nicholas also just wrote the book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And I believe that's going to be one of the most important books written about COVID-19 and this crazy time that we live in. Nicholas and I discuss on this podcast the state of the pandemic as we endure a spike in cases across the country, just how many people could die from this condition in the United States alone. He previewed 500,000 to a million people. Unbelievable. How many people need to be immune for us to reach herd immunity? Reflecting on things that the government did well and didn't do well over the course of the year, the development of vaccines and why they're not an instant fix, and what a post-pandemic world could look like, which for those of you looking for some optimism, a post-pandemic world does sound really fun from what we've learned from previous pandemics. Uh, I think this is a must-listen-to episode. Nicholas is one of the ultimate voices of truth on the coronavirus, on the planet, and we're honored to have him back on the podcast. A reminder as well that you can get 15% off a Whoop membership if you use the code Will Ahmed. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. And also a reminder that you can use respiratory rate tracking on the Whoop app to help understand if something is in your system that shouldn't be. Without further ado, here is Nicholas and the podcast. Nicholas, welcome back to the Whoop podcast. Will, thanks so much for having me back. You know, we had a phenomenal uh, podcast together in March. You gave uh, a bunch of fascinating insight onto COVID-19 and the coronavirus that we're all living with. And how do you feel like things have evolved? Big picture, just starting there, from March to today, what are a few of the things that you feel like are the most obvious surprises or the most obvious developments? Well, most most things have unfolded as sort of expert epidemiologists had forecast. You know, we have a second wave. It's become a pandemic. We've had a lot of economic hardship. People have died. Most of those things have unfolded, I think, along the lines we had discussed. But there are a couple of things that have surprised me. Uh, one, of course, is that there's been more death than I expected. I knew that this would be in the neighborhood of the second worst pandemic we've had in the last 100 years, the worst being 1918. And now it's it's blown by that. Uh, it, it's gonna it's not gonna be as bad as 1918, I, I don't think. But it's it, it's far worse than the previous second worst pandemic we had, which is the 1957 influenza, which I suspect we talked about. I don't remember. Yeah, we uh, did. Yeah. So it's definitely worse than that. Uh, you know, I think it. I think in the end, before this pandemic is over in a year or two or three at the most, you know, as this thing unfolds, as more people continue to get sick and some die at least half a million Americans will die. And depending on what we do, as many as a million uh, excess deaths. 
uh, over the duration of this pandemic. So that's that's awful. And, uh, you know, that's a major calamity. And of course, we may or may not talk about it, but, you know, many, uh, roughly five times as many, it's unknown exactly still, that's a big unknown. And I don't think it's something we discussed the last time is how many will be disabled. And that's sort of unknown. And and and, and there's a difference between disability and, um, and long COVID, which we can talk about if you want. So the, the big two things I think that are different or sort of better, two important things that were sort of unexpected when we last spoke. One is the sheer magnitude of the mortality. We had considered this magnitude, but this now we know it's bad. And the second is, is the fact that, in fact, we have been able to develop vaccines so fast. We had talked about this. I, I'm not surprised we were able to develop vaccines. And we there are existing veterinary vaccines for coronaviruses and that afflict our domesticated animals. So it's not a shocker. But, you know, we now know that we can do it. And furthermore, it's been done astonishingly fast. I had, when I wrote the book, I thought we would uh, get there in the, in 2021, probably early in 2021, and we're slightly ahead of that schedule. So those are two big astonishing uh, differences, the sheer scale of the mortality and our ability to invent an effective vaccine. Well, I devoured your book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Congratulations, first of all. You wrote that in a very short period of time, and I think it's going to become one of the core books to understand uh, what we're experiencing. Now, one of the things that I found really fascinating in the book, and I kind of want to start this podcast by helping people really understand COVID-19 and SARS-2, is you talk about the difference between SARS-1 and SARS-2. And the interesting thing is that SARS-1 was actually 10 times deadlier than SARS-2. But when you actually work through understanding the severity and so so to speak, like the danger of SARS-2 to society, you conclude that SARS-2 in some ways is more dangerous because of the way that it's able to be both highly contagious and still have a meaningful fatality rate. Explain some of those differences. Well, there are a lot of subtleties there, but let's start with um, some basic ideas. And then don't let me forget to come back to the population A and population B. Yeah, I love and that. If I forget to do that, I'll, I'll come back because it's an interesting idea. And and uh, the first time I learned it, it my I, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And now when I tell people about it, they're like, oh, that's really interesting. Anyway, so I'll come back to that. But let me back up first. Diseases that are very deadly and kill their victims very fast often burn out and don't become big pandemics. For example, the Ebola pathogens that emerge periodically in Africa, one of the reasons they haven't become worldwide is that uh, they kill half or 80% of the people that get those viruses and rapidly. So so a disease that kills you too uniformly and too swiftly, it interferes with the capacity of the, of the sick person to transmit the disease to other people. So in a way, a milder disease, a less lethal disease affords a greater opportunity for the pathogen to be transmitted. If, if I am felled quickly by the disease and take to my bed, I don't interact with too many people. Whereas if I I'm walking around and, you know, sort of okay, then I can transmit the disease to more people. So there, there's one basic principle there. And, and that's one of the differences between SARS-1 and SARS-2, which is the SARS-1 in 2003 was perhaps 10 times as deadly, and it killed people faster. And ironically, the lower lethality of SARS-2 that we're facing right now makes it a more potent threat globally. More people will die globally in part because on a per case basis, it's less less lethal. But that's only one of the reasons. 
Another very basic reason that SARS-2 is uh, so dangerous and so difficult for us to cope with is that it has this property of asymptomatic transmission. So if you think about a disease like smallpox, uh, you can't transmit smallpox really until you have symptoms of it. So you get these big pustules on your body, and uh, but then people know you, you know you have it, and people know you have it, so they can stay away from you. Contrast that, for example, with HIV, where you could have the disease for years without knowing it and transmit it to other people. And consider now the two SARS cases that we've been discussing. SARS-2, the one we're facing now, is more like HIV. You can transmit the disease before you have symptoms from it. In fact, some estimates are that 75% of the cases acquired in a typical population are acquired from other people who are asymptomatic. So we can't use symptoms to identify and isolate people who are at risk of transmitting the disease. And and it's tricky because it, the latent period, right, is shorter than the incubation period. Exactly. That's what we're saying. The latent period is the time between becoming infected and being able to transmit it. And the incubation period is the time interval between uh, becoming infected and having symptoms. And those two are different. And in the case of SARS-2, the latent period is shorter. So you start being able to transmit the disease many times, many people do, before they have symptoms of it. Conversely, SARS-1, those two periods aligned more. So people didn't really become infectious until they got symptoms. And as a result, they were more easy to detect and to isolate. That's another thing. Like in very simple terms, right? Okay, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to stay home, mm. right? Okay, well, that's going to help stop the spread if late, you know, if if those two periods, the latent period and the incubation period, are the same, right? If if the latent period's shorter, then you don't realize you're sick and you're spreading it. Yes, and isn't that one of the incredible uh, sort of anecdotal stories about whoop, I don't mean to plug the product, but just made the news, (laughs) right? Like a few months ago, some golfer or something wasn't aware, but the device detected some changes or isn't that right? Something like that? Well, that was a great plug, but yes, um, whoop whoop measures respiratory rate and an elevated respiratory rate we've been able to show uh, can be predictive of that, of that latent period where you, you may not even have symptoms yet, uh, but having an elevated respiratory rate in turn. Yeah, but there was, there was some, I can't remember the anecdote. I didn't mean to, we don't have. Well, so I know we'll hit it. So Nick Watney, a professional golfer. Yes. Yeah. And he, he had whoop for 10 months. His respiratory rate was 14 every day, respiratory rate breaths per, per minute. And, uh, and one morning he woke up and it was an 18 and he was about to go play in a professional golf tournament on the PGA tour. And he went to the doctors and said, you know, I've got this elevated respiratory rate on whoop. I think I need to be tested. And he got tested and sure enough, he was positive for COVID-19. Did and he have any other symptoms? Do you know? The story? He, he was asymptomatic for two weeks. Yeah. But the crazy thing is if you looked at his whoop data, uh, you could tell something was completely wrong because not only was his respiratory rate off the charts, he had this suppressed heart rate variability, had a really high resting heart rate. He had disruptions in his sleep. So it goes back to you know the whole yes. phenomenon of whoop, which is that you feelings are overrated. And there are things that you can actually measure about your body. And honestly, almost every day I'm getting a message from a WHOOP member showing me an elevated respiratory rate that w- that helped them detect that they had COVID-19 or at least take some precautions. So we're happy right. to, well, to help. Well, I, I wasn't deliberately going there, but I mean, I did, I did read <laughs> the story, you know, and, and, and since we're talking about, you know, asymptomatic. But there's another thing, and this is the um, a set of ideas that's really interesting, the population A, population B situation. So- This disease, and Tony Fauci has been talking about this too, 
has very protean manifestations. One of the things that makes this disease so dangerous is that it can give you everything from being asymptomatic, maybe half the people who get infected with this pathogen never have symptoms, to mild symptoms, to serious symptoms, to disability, to death. And it covers this whole broad range that it can do. And so partly this creates a problem where a messaging problem, because it's sort of difficult to get people concerned about the disease. If if many people think, oh, well, I, you know, my friends got the disease and nothing happened to them. And in fact, if that's what most of the time happens, the rarer occasions where someone gets it and gets seriously ill or dies are, are, are drowned out by the existence of these other more asymptomatic cases. But the, the model that I'd like the listeners to think about for a moment or viewers that is interesting and that when I was first taught this, it really had an impact on me is consider the following two germs, okay? So in one society, in one population, population A, you have um, a thousand people, 10 of them get seriously ill from the germ and one of them dies. So one out of 10 sick people died, that's 10% fatality. That sounds pretty bad. In population B, you have a thousand people, a hundred of them get sick, but 90 get mild illness and recover completely. Nine get, again, serious illness, and one gets serious illness and also dies. So in population B, one out of a hundred people who got sick died, so 1%. Superficially, you might say the pathogen in population A is a worse pathogen. 10% of the people who got the disease died. Whereas in the second population, population B, only 1% died. But if you stop and think about it, there is no scenario under which if you were a person and you could choose which population to be in, you would prefer to be in population B, which ostensibly had the lower fatality. Because in that world, in both worlds, one person died. In both worlds, nine people got seriously ill. But in world B, in addition, another 90 got mildly ill. So it's clearly worse overall to be in that world. And ironically, that's what's happening to us right now. We SARS-2 is more like that. You see, it's potentially just as fatal as SARS-1, but it also infects additional people that it doesn't make quite so sick. And it muddies the waters for us in terms of our public health messaging and in terms of how we experience the illness, deluding us into thinking this isn't such a serious pathogen. In fact, I would argue that if the same number of people were dying of SARS-2, but no one was getting it and having a mild illness and recovering, our nation would be doing a better job of fighting it. We'd be taking it more seriously. Yeah, it does seem like uh, there's a there's a number of things that from a communication standpoint, we could have done way, way better going back to March. And, and we'll get that to that in, in half a second. I, I want you to explain what we know today about the case fatality rate and the IFR and the, the phenomenon of those two statistics. I mean, there are a number of basic epidemiological properties of a pathogen, but the two most basic are how contagious is it? How easily does it transmit from person to person, which is captured by the R naught, the R sub zero, which we can talk about if you want, and how deadly is it? And the deadliness can be, can be characterized in a number of ways. The most basic is something known as the infection fatality rate, the IFR, which is of all the people who get infected, how many die? It's a very simple calculation of you infect 100 people, does one person die? Do 10 people die? Do 50 people die? What's the percent of people that you infect that die? We now know, nine months into this, that the IFR of this pathogen, using multiple studies and 
combining them using something called meta-analysis, which combines all the estimates from multiple studies. And there was a recent meta-analysis that was just released a couple of months ago that the infection fatality rate of this pathogen is between 0.5 and 0.8%. That means 0.5 to 0.8% of the people who get the disease will die. Uh, And there was another recent paper that just came out that actually put that number at a little bit higher at around 1%. But remember about, about half the people have no symptoms. So there's another thing called the case fatality rate, which is the fraction of people who come to medical attention who die, or alternatively, the fraction of people who develop symptoms who die. Now, this is a little bit, I don't like to use this measure quite as much because it can depend on the kind of healthcare system you have. If you have a, or testing, you know, if you have a lot of testing, for example, or, and, and people can discern that they have the condition if they have certain symptoms, for example. So, but about half the people, as we said earlier, don't get symptoms. So you can double the numbers I just gave you for the IFR. So if the IFR is 0.5 to 0.8%, the case fatality rate is between 1% and 1.6%. Let's say about 1% of the people who get symptomatic COVID will die. Finally, this varies, as everyone knows now, by age. So as a parent, I'm very relieved that I don't have to worry so much if my children get sick. But if you're in your 20s and you get this condition, you have a maybe one in 3,000 to one in 5,000 probability of death. If you're in your 50s or 60s, it's about one in 100 to maybe two in 100. And if you're in your 70, late 70s or 80s, it's about one in five, about 20 to 25% of the people who get symptomatic COVID will die. In fact, when President Trump got the disease and when he was put on dexamethasone, those indicators suggested he had a rather substantial risk of dying and did not actually, which was amazing. Uh, anyway, so this is this is the, the the probability of death with age. This is the famous backward L-shaped curve, uh, you know, the, the, the way in which age affects the probability of death. But before I stop on that topic, let me just say one more thing. So on the one hand, it's great news that if a young person gets a disease, they face a low risk of death. And many young people hearing this might think, oh, that's great. And it is great. As a parent, it's great. As a young person, it's great. But actually, you have to stop and think for a moment because young people have a low probability of death from any cause. Getting COVID substantially increases your baseline risk of death. It's affirmatively foolish to seek out the disease or to not care about getting it. It's a needless risk of death. You don't have to take it. You have a low risk of dying in the next year. There's absolutely no reason to add on to that an, another low risk of dying that you pre, you could avoid completely, especially since within a year or so, you might get access to a vaccine, which would be protective. So I would, and, for, and finally, young people can also transmit the disease. So even if you don't care about your own life, it's, it's socially irresponsible of you to say, oh, well, I'll just, who cares if I get sick, but you could get sick and harm others. So for all these reasons, I, I would encourage people who hear this not to take this disease lightly. It's a serious infectious disease, and it it kills a goodly number of people. It's not the flu. It's 10 times deadlier than the flu. Well, the, the two things which we just touched on, and I'm glad we laid this foundation, that I feel like if we could go back in time in March and just really communicate, um, they would have really meaningfully improved the way uh, everyone performed and a lot of policy decisions. And it, screen, it comes out very clear in your book. Tell me if you think these are the two fair things that we should have gotten communicated better. The first is this phenomenon of the fact that if you're asymptomatic, you can spread it, right? For, for whatever reason, I don't feel like that really was broadcast appropriately 
um, and, and loud enough and early enough. There was this idea, if you can get it and you don't have symptoms, that's a sign, in fact, that this isn't that big, de- big a deal, mm. right? Whereas actually the, the secret was, well, that person's now spreading it to a bunch of people who might, might have a really bad result. And the second thing is this idea of people who are at super high risk versus people who are at super low risk of dying. Because of course you don't want everyone to get it, but if people are going to get it, you want it to be the people who are lower risk, right? And if you look at certain things that have happened in nursing homes, some of the policy decisions relating to nursing homes, pure insanity in hindsight, right? Where you have people who are infected with COVID-19 going back into nursing homes, right? Like that is, that is insanity now knowing what we know. Do you think that's the right takeaway? Those two phenomenons? Well, I think those two are are important to highlight. I don't think those are the only. Certainly not the only ones, but those yes, two. And also, I, mean, I think those were sort of known, honestly, certainly by March, we had enough evidence from China and from Italy. I mean, the lack of preparedness of our country, it makes me ashamed, honestly, and 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 disappointed in ourselves. We're a great nation, I think. And I don't mean that in a jingoistic sense. I mean, we, we are a very wealthy nation. We we mostly have a functioning political system. We we have um, tremendous scientists. We have the CDC. We have tremendous expertise. We have the capacity to invent vaccines in nine months. You know, amazing, amazing. The yeah, vaccine amazing. development's amazing. Amazing. No, everything's amazing. We have, but we also have epidemiologists. We have we have a we had a public health system we hadn't invested in as much as we should have. But nevertheless, we had a functioning public health system. And for various reasons, I think our our political leadership interfered with the ability of the system to perform. But but I think everyone also. Many people, including the people on the street, sort of the man and woman on the street, I think, weren't paying adequate attention. And so I started looking at this condition when we discussed it in March. I had already begun research on this topic in, in January. And, I, and because of my work, I was really focused on what was happening in China. And on, on January 24th in China, the, the Chinese passed rules that put 930 million people in home confinement. Like the Chinese thought that this disease was so bad, was so severe, the threat was so great that they, I think maybe I used this expression before with you, they basically detonated a social nuclear weapon. I mean, I love love that expression, the social nuclear weapon, but it's so true. I mean, if there was ever anything that that should have signaled, hey, this is a big deal. Yes, we should have been paying attention. And we now know that the president, I mean, if I was aware of this and my colleagues around the country were aware of this in late January, I would certainly hope that the president of the United States was aware. And in fact, we now know the president was briefed by the NSA and by others earlier, you know, in December even, and um, knew what was coming. And even if we had ignored that, and we should have then started preparing, we should have prepared testing capacity, we should have prepared PPE, we should have prepared our healthcare system, we should have prepared the citizenry, we should have said this thing is coming, it's going to be serious, it's going to call for sacrifice, we're going to have to band together as a nation to cope with this, this is a once in a century event, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. We should have leveled with the American people. But certainly, even if we ignored that, then Italy was stricken, okay, in February. It's a rich European democracy. So what you know, what were we thinking? I mean, why did we think we wouldn't be afflicted, you see? And and then we did nothing to speak of until March, when beginning in sort of middle to late March, New York starts having a really bad epidemic where one out of a thousand New Yorkers died in two or three months. And in minority populations in New York, one uh, three out of uh, as many as three out of a thousand New Yorkers died. 
This is a huge toll of mortality. You may think, oh, one out of a thousand is not such a big deal. That's a lot of people to die in a totally, couple of months. Totally. Now, and- a lot of them also fell into the, those older populations that we talked about earlier, in part because of the mismanagement of nursing homes. Yes, of course, that's true. But it wasn't just the elderly. And furthermore, even that narrative, and I know you're not suggesting that, that oh, it's, you know, it's just the elderly. I mean, these people are our grandparents, our parents, our neighbors, their fellow citizens. It's not like, yes, I am happy and relieved that the young are spared. You know, I think that's great. But that doesn't make me unmindful of the burden on, on the other end of the age spectrum, you know? Oh, not at all. I wasn't implying that. No. I, what I was saying is that I, I feel like the approach to these different age groups could have been so different yes. as well. Right, like the way that we talked about this virus for a certain age of population versus a younger population could have been different. Let's talk about two organizations that I think screwed a lot up. The first is the World Health Organization, which as late as April was saying that you don't need to wear a mask. I was wearing an N95 mask on planes in late January. And the fact that the WHO was saying this in April, I thought was pure insanity. Can you defend that? No, and I have to say, you're not the first person to ask me about this. In the book, you probably noticed I, I don't- And do you a, mentioned it a little bit. A little bit, but I don't do a deep dive on, I didn't have time or interest to deeply excavate WHO's missteps. And, and there were quite a few on the masking, the early on, and uh, I think some of the criticisms about WHO, for whatever reason, not being swift on the uptake in China. Some people think it was for political reasons, whatever. I haven't done a deep dive to really study that. But yes, the WHO has occasionally released nonsense statements. For example, there was another famous thing that I did pay attention to, that they released a statement that the case fatality rate was 3.4%, which was absurdly high. And every yeah, yeah. And I'm like, how on earth? Don't they have epidemiologists working at the WHO? Like, how is this possible that they would, they did a certain kind of naive calculation, which it's not worth going into, but I did look at that. And, and, uh, I was astonished by that. And the advice against masking, their statement early on that there wasn't interpersonal transmission. This was in January, but we already knew there was interpersonal. By January 24th, it was widely known among experts that there was interpersonal transmission. So here the issue was, at the very beginning of the outbreak, people were wondering, well, are the humans that are getting this condition simply getting it from contact with the same source, like bats? Right. Or... Once it infects a human, can it spread from human to human? This is a very important thing to figure out. The Chinese did figure it out quickly. And uh, and this was known to experts in January. Uh, but the WHO still was slow on the uptake on this. So there were a number of missteps by the WHO, yes. And then the CDC managed to screw up the original test kits. Yes. Right? And you wrote about this in the book. And yes. then they, it took forever to rectify it. Yes, Really a Keystone Cops uh, kind of situation, honestly. And uh, that story hasn't been fully told. I'm sure there'll be leaks of documents and interviews, and I'm sure there'll be long-form journalism about this, or others will explore this. No doubt there'll be many books written about the pandemic and, and this aspect of it, and the failure of the various federal agencies and political leaders, of course. No, the gist of what happened there is there were um, the capacity. So the Chinese released, I forgot the date, sometime in January, maybe the 21st of January, they released the sequence, the genetic sequence of the RNA of the virus. They made it publicly available. Incidentally, the, the Chinese scientist that did that, the Chinese Communist Party didn't like this and, and closed her lab immediately, which was ridiculous. I mean, the woman, yeah, was totally doing, ridiculous. the woman was doing exactly what 
she should have done. She did a great service to the scientific community and to the world. In fact, the Moderna scientists took that public sequence and immediately started developing an RNA vaccine like that day. And within 40 days or something, I may have these numbers wrong, already had targeted segments that were going to be the core of their vaccine. Amazing. Amazing. And But that same sequence could also be used to develop tests. And in, in 2009, during the H1N1 influenza pandemic, the CDC was able to to develop tests, influenza is a different virus than coronavirus, but nevertheless, similar kinds of issues, was able to develop tests and distribute millions of tests within a few weeks or something. I mean, they, 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 they know what to do, they know how to do it, they've done it before, but this time, oh, and, and this technology, this ability to make these tests is widely available in every sort of elite hospital in the country. But the concern was that those people developing those tests, they didn't have FDA approval to, uh, to do that and to use them in patients. And also there was some concern about inconsistency, you know, like one hospital might develop a slightly better test than another or for a different part of the genome, et cetera. So because of these reasons, initially the government said you can only use CDC tests and the CDC wasn't able to produce enough of them first. And second, there were three components to the test. And because of some lab contamination, one of the components was contaminated and didn't work properly. But the other two components did work. And labs around the country said, okay, you won't let us make our own tests. You insist we use a CDC test. We now know the CDC test isn't working. It's this one component. Can we use the other two components? And the government said, no, you can't do that. And, 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 and sorry, what would be the explanation for saying no? Like, I, I, it seems indefensible, but what would be the explanation? That the test wasn't being used as designed or something. I mean, or I don't, I don't remember exactly right now <laughs> what the I mean, reason was. Yeah. But there was a lot of finger pointing that you need to get FDA approval to do this and the CD. If you're going to modify the test, some other agency needs to approve that the bureaucracy at the FDA was not hadn't been galvanized by our political leadership to move heaven and earth to make things happen. So there are a lot of professionals. I mean, the expertise at the CDC and the FDA, I just have to emphasize, is world class. OK, the, the scientists and the and even the bureaucrats that work at these organizations are phenomenal. And yet they were almost fighting with one hand behind their back. They were being restrained, I believe, by a lot of the political appointees and politicians from doing their jobs. And they may also have screwed up. There may have been some, you know, mistakes. And so, so then private labs said, well, we can do it. You know, so I said, we can make the test, you know, American capitalism, let us solve the problem. And this was also not allowed because, you know, ordinarily for you to sell a commercial test, you need to have all kinds of other approvals. And the politicians didn't step in and said, no, you know, you should be allowed to do that. So we we lost precious weeks when we were flying blind because we didn't have the testing capacity, the amount of testing, the quality of testing, and the location of testing that we needed. I Yeah, I would argue, though, it's a lot more than weeks. I mean, the fact that I'm not taking an at-home test every single morning is a travesty. I mean, yes. that, imagine if every single person in the country was able to take an at-home test every morning. Uh, yes, I think that's we all should have these appliances at home. I mean, they'll be expensive, of course, and not every home can have them necessarily. And that's not a solution on a national scale, but certainly it should it should be available. And incidentally, on this thing, testing is a, is a public good. In other words, I'm glad to hear that you're testing every day. Even if I can't test myself, it's great that you're testing. Because when you test, if you act responsibly, you reduce the risk of transmission of the virus. You're performing a public service by testing yourself. Totally. 
in my extended family, we've repeatedly on different occasions in the last nine months tried to get tests and we've had every sort of problem. My wife was sick in, uh, with a pretty bad respiratory illness in March. She could have had COVID, I'm not sure. She went to an elite teaching hospital and was told that she had too many symptoms and therefore they wouldn't assign one of the precious tests to her. And we had so few tests. Initially, we only tested people that came back from China, for example, which was also foolish. Another time, my daughter needed to get a test to go from one state to another state, but the time that it would take to get the test result back was 10 days. So she just might as well have quarantined for 14 days, which was the alternative, rather than taking the test, plus the expense, $200, $300, $150. It should cost nothing. And by the way, the way, the way that we've spent money as a government, we should have had the budget to have every citizen tested well, all the time. It would have been peanuts compared to our losses. Larry Summers, a former treasury secretary, and uh, David Cutler, a professor of health economics at Harvard, former colleagues of mine, they published a paper two or three months ago now that said the SARS-CoV-2 was the $16 trillion virus. That's the damage to our economy. These are enormous sums. Eight yeah. trillion, eight trillion due to the economic damage, and eight trillion due to the death, illness, uh, and disability that the virus will cause. And so, spending a few hundred billion dollars to on testing, for instance, and it wouldn't have been a few hundred billion, is peanuts compared to the loss. That I know. Yeah, you could have done it for that. No, no question. I mean, you call out these mistakes in 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 your your brilliant book. But it's so obvious. I mean, the FDA should have allowed hospitals to develop their own tests. And the Department of Health and Human Services should have helped make commercial tests available, right? Those two, those two things could have dramatically increased testing. Yes, and, early and, on when it was especially helpful, yes. But we need it today still. I mean, that's the scary thing. Yes. We need it today. Yes, um, yes. Can you believe it? We're the United States of America and we still can't test everyone as easily and as inexpensively as we should be nine months in? Well, I do think that, I think it, that it was a perfect storm to happen in an election year as well, because the whole thing got so politicized. Yes. And in reading your book, it just, you, you have a great chapter about misinformation. And I've even found myself, this is why I'm part of so excited to read your book and so excited to spend time with you, Nicholas, is like, I consider you a source of truth on this. Mm. But you see the CDC have these false steps. Uh, at WHO, the moment they said masks weren't weren't real in April, I completely, I, no longer they became a source of truth for me. Other people can make their own decisions. But it made me realize along the way this year that I personally felt like I didn't know where to find the right information related to this virus. And so, you know, I would read research studies. I would I would read the internet. You know, you read various publications the times, others, but then you start to realize they have these different biases often going back to the election. And so it was just frustrating. And I wonder what that was like for you, naturally knowing the facts, that must've been so frustrating. It was frustrating. I mean, but also honestly exciting because there was so much knowledge being produced by so many different kinds of scientists every day. I mean, I was spending an hour or two hours a day just reading the work of other scientists, virologists, epidemiologists, uh, biochemists, um, social scientists uh, from all over the world, you know, Chinese, uh, Italian, British, Swedish scientists. I mean, it was, it is still very exciting. I mean, the volume of information is just, is enormous. Although just to interrupt you for a second, you had access to the right information also, right? You knew where to find it. These guys don't have 80 million followers on Twitter. 
Yes. Yeah, so you're right. It was easier for me to kind of tr sort out fact from fiction and uh, digest the information. Correct. Uh, but I, I do think that it was possible to identify, to, to do two things as, a, as an ordinary citizen. First, to take responsibility for the information that you acquired and passed on. So, you know, to cultivate a sense of discipline, to think about what you're reading, to think about the source of what you're reading, to look for other ideas about what you're reading. Like the number of people who were not, let me put it this way, all those people who were not doctors and were not scientists who thought hydroxychloroquine would be effective weren't reading the right things. They were like way out of their lane, you know? And uh, it was not crazy to consider that hydroxychloroquine would be effective. There was some uh, biochemical reason to suspect it might be, and there was some in vitro evidence that it might reduce viral uh, replication, but there was no material clinical evidence that held up to scrutiny that it would work. And then randomized control trial after randomized control trial kept coming out. To, and, and I would look at these trials and I'd be like, this is a pretty good trial. I don't think there's any evidence that this drug works. You know, in fact, the drug does not work. And then another trial would come out and confirm that. And so it was very clear that it wasn't effective. And yet many, many people believe that it was in part, for example, because the president promulgated this, but it was false. I mean, you, know, you just look well, at I mean, the, <laughs> the reason that these things got so out of control. And I, and I'm completely there with you on that is that I remember the Lancet actually yeah. published a huge research study on hydroxychloroquine. And then it came out later that that whole study was like a fraudulent study yes. with fake information. Yes. And if you were someone who was pounding your chest, that was like, no, this could work, this could work. And then you find out that one of the leading research institutions completely faked the study yes. and had all these bad actors yes. that showed it didn't work. Yes. And the president of the United States is pushing it. Yes. You're all of a sudden immediately, that's reaffirmation that your that's idea cool. was right. And so it's this is where yes. the whole thing got so out of control. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. You're and shame on the Lancet. I mean, that's a real publication. I don't know how yeah. they how that happened. Uh, the, the Lancet is a leading medical journal, uh, one of the most elite journals to publish in in the world. And the scientists that published that, one of them is a very good scientist who got snookered by one of his colleagues, who, as you said, made up the data to show that hydroxychloroquine was ineffective in a large observational study. Now, to be clear, when I saw that study, I immediately smelled a rat. And many of my friends smelled a rat, but you need a, a high level of sophistication to have appreciated why that study was likely poor. I was surprised that it survived peer review because it was so implausible. I mean, it was just so implausible uh, what they were reporting. And so I didn't put much credence in that study, but you're absolutely right. That study was reported widely. It did appear in an elite journal. And when it collapsed, just to remind listeners, that study showed that hydroxychloroquine did not work which is in fact true, but the study was fraud. Uh, it totally gutted confidence in all the other well-conducted studies, which also showed that hydroxychloroquine did not work. So you're right; it was a mess, and 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 it does highlight the difficulties in, you know. And the thing about science, though, just to be fair, is that when done properly, and if it's done in keeping with the the theory of science. The whole point of science is that it's it's a self-correcting pursuit of the truth. That's the that is the ultimate. It's like it's like profit seeking for for-profit companies. That's their purpose. You know, they're 
trying to make a profit. And that's how they judge whether they're success or failure. And they cannot survive. If they, they lose money indefinitely, they go out of business. I mean, that, you have to make money to survive. In science, this, the central focus is, can we discern something true about the world or not? And what are our procedures for discerning this truth? And how do we correct ourselves when we are seeing something false? And some people use the Lancet fiasco actually to say, look, this vindicates the scientific method. Yes, that was a fraud, but it was found out to be a fraud and corrected. Uh, the record was corrected. So, And look, everyone's moving at a pace that they're not used to moving. And if there's one criticism I've had of the research community, it's that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the muscle to move at a fast enough pace sometimes. And that's it's also why at WHOOP, we've, we've continued to try to really push research very fast. Okay, let's talk about a couple of the other negatives here. In your book, you talk about the comparison between 2020 and 2019 um, and the emotions that people reported feeling, right? 2020, 52% of people expressing worry. 2019, 35%. 2020, enjoyment, 64%. 2019, 83%. Sadness, 32% versus 23%. Anger, 24% versus 15%. I mean, these are pretty meaningful changes in the way people are feeling. Yes. I mean, one of the things about contagious disease that has been observed for hundreds or even thousands of years. I mean, we have accounts of the plague of Justinian 1500 years ago, or the plague of Athens 2,500 years ago, where people describe how contagious, you know, time of an epidemic is a time of grief, right? I mean, it's, People are losing their lives, they're losing their livelihoods, they're losing their way of life. It's sad, right? And it's it's frightening. It's uh, it, it's you know it's it's maddening. Um, and 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 in in fact, in in 2020 in America, in our time in the crucible, because just to digress for a moment, what made us think that we, unlike all previous humans, would be spared. Um, having right. to experience a plague. I mean, this is our time in the crucible. This happens every so often, every few hundred, every hundred years, every 50 years, we get something serious like this. And now is our turn to, to face this. And like all prior humans who face this situation, we're sad and mad and angry and, and so on. And, um, and, and, and that's, I mean, as you describe, you summarize those statistics, that's exactly what, what is happening. I want to know if if it were up to you, everything you know now, and we went back in time to March or even February, and you were in control. And let's say first that you just wanted to maximize for economic prosperity, right? So deaths aren't aren't quote unquote as important to you, but you wanted to maximize for the economy. What kind of policies would you in place? And then we'll we'll switch that and we'll do no, if you want to just maximize for no one dying. No, I don't think I don't think they're very different because Okay, good. So people, so you're in control. Yeah, dying people is bad for the economy. I mean I agree. I completely yeah. agree. But I'm just curious if there's a different lens for those two goals. No, I think I think ironically, fighting the virus is the same thing that preserves the economy. So I, I think it's very important for listeners to understand that part of the economic collapse that we're experiencing is things that we're doing to ourselves. But most of the economic collapse is things the virus is doing to us. Even for hundreds of years, even before states acted, for example, to close businesses, like there weren't orders you know, in, in medieval Europe to shut down schools, for example. 
The virus alone, the, the bubonic plague in that case, the bacteria alone caused these behaviors. So a lot of the slowing and ceasing of our economy, uh, most of the economic damage is due to the virus. And in principle, some of the things we do which harm our economy, like closing schools or, or mandating, uh, putting in travel restrictions or, or uh, closing firms or telling people to work at home or all of those kinds of things we're doing to decrease the spread of the virus. Yes, those have economic effects, but we imagine that those decisions are being made in the service of reducing the overall amount of death and economic hardship that the virus imposes. So this, this way in which people came to think that, oh, if the government hadn't been doing stuff, we'd be fine, is false. We would be in bad shape even if the government had done, in fact, we'd be in worse shape if the government had done nothing. So I, I think it's very important for listeners to understand that the economic damage is a property of the virus. We got to fight the virus and we got to prevent death, disability, illness, and, and, and so on, in part because those things slow the economy. It's also waste money. Like we have to spend all this money caring for people who are sick now who otherwise wouldn't have been sick but for the virus. So it's a big dead, it's a drag on the economy, right? Having this, it's like, if it's like, if it would be like a, uh, a so-called dirty bomb, you know, a, a, a nuclear bomb, not with nuclear fission, but, you know, just created radiation particles, blanketed the country. And every time you left your house, you had to put on a spacesuit. It would make everything much more difficult. You have to drive more slowly. You couldn't go to certain kinds of, you know, everything. Totally. Okay, so we're in agreement. Deaths are friction. bad. It's a kind but, of friction. But now you have to, you have to create the policies. Yeah, so a policies I would implement would be, I would have loved to have done the New Zealand policy, which is very secure borders uh, and then immediate contact tracing. But New Zealand is an island and even they couldn't completely stop the virus. It comes back from time to time. Uh, the virus, you, you really can't close borders as a technique for stopping the virus. You can postpone the entry of a virus, but there's it's very difficult to completely seal a border in a time of pandemic disease. In fact, I've never seen it successfully done. New Zealand is as close as I've ever seen, but they still are closed and the virus still comes in from time to time. Short of that, what I would have done is I would have done sort of the South Korean model. I would have had widespread education on mask wearing. I would have encouraged physical distancing. I would have provided for widespread testing and encouraging people to isolate. I would not have implemented, given our civil liberties commitments, some of the techniques for contact tracing the Koreans did, which is... You know, they had, the government had huge amounts of data, private data about individuals. Like cell phone data and things like that. And credit card data. Like, for example, if if I tested positive, they had the capacity to see, okay, I was in this store buying shoes on this time. At this time, who else was in the store buying stuff at that time? Right. Pull those records and then contact those people. I mean, just astonishing uh, capabilities using data science. So I, I wouldn't have done things like that, but I certainly would have done all the kind of basic stuff I would have done. And I would have been a bit more rapid, for example, on some of the gathering bans and thinning out some of the social mixing and, and considered schools closures and so on. We did, you see, the thing is, we did a lot of these things, but we did them needlessly late. I mean, the same thing is happening in the Dakotas right now. Right now in the Dakotas, they have the highest per capita death rate for, from COVID of any place in the world. Now, they're, they're thinly populated rural states, but the fraction of people dying is higher there than anywhere else has been for this pandemic. And they're slowly now beginning to do some stuff. So they avoided doing all this stuff that they didn't want to do earlier, but they're inexorably being pushed to do it now anyway. How much wiser it would have been to have done it a few months ago and saved all these lives. I mean, why are we 
finally, when we're forced, you know, then we do the stuff we sh- was obvious we should have done, you know, three or four months ago. By the way, who branded social distancing? Isn't it physical distancing? I call it physical distancing. Yeah, it was, I kind of, early on, I tried to push against this and say, we, we shouldn't be using the expression social distancing. We should be using the expression physical distancing because what we need right now is actually to band together to live apart. You know, we, we do need to keep physical distance, but we don't want to be isolated, in fact. So the lockdowns, the restaurants closing, where, were, where would you be your policy decisions on things like that? Well, I think that um, I think it would be very data driven. So, for example, in the state of Vermont right now, the uh, governor recently announced that in looking at the data, what they found was that the main sources of transmission were house parties where young adults or youngish people getting together with people outside their household in large numbers and having parties involving alcohol, for example. And these were creating outbreaks, whereas the restaurants that had implemented, you know, some sane uh, policies and thinned out their crowds there haven't been too many, if any, outbreaks at restaurants. So I think we could use data. I, I do think that you, you need to, you know, you need to be prepared to close the restaurants or close the bars or certainly close the nightclubs or or thin them out or put capacity limits. I mean, I think it's a it's a collective threat, uh, an epidemic disease is, and I think we have to be prepared to do these unpleasant things. I don't think, you know, one of the things that has come up a lot is this notion of COVID fatigue. But I think it's really important not to confuse our exhaustion with fighting this virus and the unpleasant steps that we're required to take if we want to prevent death and disability with um, the reality of the condition we are in. In other words, let's say, I, I unfortunately have had to have quite a few root canals in my life. Let's say you need a few root canals and you're sitting in the dentist's chair and the dentist does too and they're awful root canals, they're just awful. And, uh, and you're like, okay, I've had two, I don't want any more. Well, that, that has absolutely no bearing on whether you need them. <laughs> you know, you, you need to have more of these unpleasant things. And your, you know, being tired of having root canals has, has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of your dentition. So, so this is sort of the situation we're in. People are saying, you know, I don't want any more of this. But that doesn't have any bearing on the virus. The virus is doing its own thing. It's going to continue to affect us. Let's, let's remember, we haven't talked about this yet. So there's, we haven't talked about herd immunity. Have we talked about herd immunity in this so far? No. I can't remember. We've talked about so many things. Okay. So just, so herd immunity is the idea that a population can be immune from a pathogen or immune from an epidemic, even though not everyone within that population is immune. So for example, if you vaccinate 96% of the population for measles, even if one of the people, one of the 4% who's not immune gets the disease, they can't really start an outbreak because they're not going to interact with anyone who's susceptible. Most of the people are immune. So that means you have herd immunity. The herd is immune to the pathogen, even though not 100% of the people are immune. This herd immunity threshold, this percentage, you should have the intuition, varies according to the infectiousness of the germ. So measles is the most infectious disease we know. The lower the infectiousness, the lower the herd immunity threshold. So for example, for seasonal flu, it's not very contagious seasonal flu. It's R naught is much lower. So it's if I have the if if, you, if I have measles, on average I might infect 16 or 18 other people. If I have a seasonal flu, on average I might infect 1.5 other people. And the fact that that number is higher than one is what means it means to be an epidemic. The cases grow. If each case just replaces itself, then the disease stays at the same level across time. SARS-CoV-2 has an R naught of three. And so that means that uh, each case 
it, the intrinsic uh, infectiousness of the pathogen, each case can create three new cases in a non-immune, normally interacting host population. And if you take that number and then you plug it into another standard formula to compute the herd immunity threshold, it turns out that according to that formula, 66% of Americans would need to be immune for us to reach herd immunity. Now, it turns out also for certain network science reasons, which are interesting, but I don't think we'll go into, that number needs to come down a little and probably between 40 and 50%, let's say 45% of Americans would need to get this disease before we reach the herd immunity threshold. Well, where are we right now? Probably about 12% of Americans have been infected with this disease and have some natural immunity. We're just, we're not at the beginning of the end of this epidemic. We're just at the end of the beginning. We're at the opening act. And even though we're going to invent a vaccine, it's gonna take time to manufacture and distribute and get people to take the vaccine. I think probably we'll be into you know late 2021, early 2022, before we have half the population vaccinated. Meanwhile, the virus is still spreading. So my feeling is that until 2022, well, 2022 will reach herd immunity either artificially because of vaccination or naturally because of the pathogen. And so until that time, we're gonna be living as we are now, having to wear masks, physical distancing. I think, at least as I said earlier, at least half a million Americans are gonna die of this condition, maybe as many as a million. And we're just, every day, 1,500 Americans are dying. And that number is just gonna go up every single day. It's so amazing. It's, it's awful. So we're gonna be in this changed world as the virus does it, has its way with us. You know, It's just gonna do what any living thing, there's a debate about whether viruses are living, but anyway, <laughs> it's doing. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's found untouched terrain in our bodies and it's just spreading, you know, it's having a field day with us until 2022. And then at that point, it's still going to take some time to recover from the psychological, social, and economic shock of the virus. You know, 30 million Americans are out of work. Countless businesses have gone out of business. Mental health, yeah. Mental health, all of that stuff, exactly. And then beginning in 2024, we're going to enter. So this is the immediate period we're in now. Then there'll be the intermediate period till, let's say, roughly 2024. And then there'll be, I think, the post-pandemic period which will be a little like the roaring 20s, I think, after the 1918 pandemic. So immediate 2020, 2022, intermediate 2022 to 2024, and then post-2024 onwards. Let's talk about the, the intermediate or the post-periods. There's a lot to learn from previous pandemics in this regard, uh, but it tends to be a period of excess and spending and, yes. frankly, sounded like quite a lot of fun. Describe yes. that. Well, usually during times of epidemics for hundreds of years, people get more religious. And we're seeing that now in the United States. Religion is Religiosity is rising. Uh, virtual church attendance is going up. You know, people are finding God, uh, which is very typical during times of plague. Uh, people save money. They don't spend money because they're uncertain. They're worried. Uh, also, there are less places to spend money. So the same thing is happening now. It's happened for hundreds of years. There's a kind of abstemiousness that takes place, uh, a kind of risk aversion. Uh, what I think is going to happen in 2024, when we finally put the biological and epidemiological shock of the virus behind us and the social and economic shock, is I think all of that will unravel very dramatically. I think um, people are going to relentlessly seek out social opportunities at 
nightclubs and restaurants and sporting events and political rallies. I think spending will be liberalized. There'll be a lot of spending. Uh, might be some sexual licentiousness, uh, some joie de vivre, some risk-taking. You know, one reviewer looking at how I describe this in the book says, you know, here's hoping, uh, sort of like what you just said. So yes, yeah. I think that we're going to see a kind of, um, you know, people will have been caged in and closed in for quite a while. And, you know, they will, you know, break out, I think of that is what's likely to happen. You know, approximately, I mean, we can't be sure about all this, but roughly speaking. And some of that may start earlier, right, than 2024. I mean, how well, would you frame that? Well, it depends. I mean, if you look at various expert forecasts of how long it'll take the airline industry to recover, um, business travel is not going to come right back, uh, Will. Even when a vaccine is widely available, many people are still going to be saying, you know, gee, why should I hop on a plane? There might The virus will still be around, so I could get the virus. Oh, I think business travel's forever changed. Okay, well, there you are. So yeah. there's something that's going to take a while. People are still going to be wearing masks. They're not going to want to avoid crowded places. People are still going to not have money to spend. They'll have been unemployed. Millions of people will be unemployed. Working from home, there'll be shifts in the real estate sector as, as businesses don't need as much square footage in the cities. Some people have relocated to rural areas. Eventually, the cities will come back, by the way. That's for sure. But in the short term, there's going to be a lot of disruption in the economy. And um, and so and all of these industries will be affected. And it'll take a while for all of that to normalize. It's not going to suddenly happen when, you know, when the vaccine reaches 50% or the natural immunity reaches 50%. And so that's why I think it'll take, you pick, a year, two years, you know, some amount of time. What's your pitch to someone who is nervous to take a vaccine? I think we all need to be vaccinated. I don't know yet how safe the vaccines will be. I believe we will soon have convincing evidence of the efficacy of the vaccines. The trials have ordered 40,000 people in them. So Rare serious complications of vaccines, let's say one in 100,000 people having a serious complication or death, would have been unlikely to have been detected in the trials. And usually we accept, we expect safety levels from our vaccines of one in a million to one in 10 million serious complications. Most of the widely available vaccines are incredibly safe. And, and, and from a public health point of view, there are no brainers. You lose one in a million lives, but you save thousands of lives with the vaccines. So it's very easy to recommend them. And I'm vaccinated for every single disease for which there is a vaccine available, I think except for rabies, because I, I, couldn't, I don't have a legitimate reason to get a rabies vaccine. But everything else I get vaccinated for. Now, in the case of the coronavirus vaccine, we won't know immediately when it's available how safe the vaccine is. It, it will, we'll know that it's pretty safe. We won't know how safe until we start rolling it out. And the first people that get the vaccine, of course, will be the people that were in the placebo arm of the trials, they have first dibs, rightly so. They took a risk to, they took a personal risk in order to help us acquire the knowledge that the vaccine works. They should be first in line. Then we'll have healthcare workers, one or two million healthcare workers. And at that point, if we've rolled it out to healthcare workers without much evidence of safety problems, I think pretty much everyone at that point should be really confident that it's proper and safe to get the vaccine and they should get the vaccine. Yes. Very helpful. Well, Nicholas, look, thank you so much for the time that you've spent with me. And I think thank you for all the hard work that you and your team is doing to help humanity understand this virus. Yeah. I'll say one last thing for listeners who are interested. We released an app called Hunala, H-U-N-A-L-A, Hunala, which is available on the Apple uh, on, on the Apple and Google Play and on the Apple App Store. And um, 
the app is is like it's not a contact tracing app. It's a risk forecasting app. It's like Waze for coronavirus. It predicts the likelihood that you will come into contact with the virus in the future by crowdsourcing information about your social network and about where you live. So just like when you're driving on the highway, people five miles ahead of you say there's a police stop or a traffic jam there, and now you're alerted, you can exit the highway. This app works very similar to that. When you sign up for the app, if you want, you can give it access to your contacts on your phone. It does not copy the contacts. It doesn't take them, but it makes it easier for you to identify who you're social, who you're interacting with, so you don't have to type in their names or their numbers. And then it captures that information about your social network all anonymously. Uh, it captures where you live if you wish it to. It collects this information. It uses machine learning technology to predict your risk as often as you want, daily or whatever. And like a weather app, you can track the occurrence of uh, coronavirus in other parts of the country. So if you want to see what's happening where mom lives or where junior lives, you can do that too. Anyway, it's a product of my laboratory. It's released by Yale University. It is uh, a tool that I use every day and people may want to use it. And that's Hunala. H-U-N-A-L-A. And you can learn more about it as well at our website, which is hunala.yale.edu. And where can people find your amazing book, Apollo's Arrow? Uh, well, anywhere. All bookstores have <laughs> bookstores near you. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I'm glad we got it in. All right. Um, Nicholas, this has been an absolute pleasure, and we'll include all, all those things we just mentioned in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks to Nicholas for coming on the Whoop podcast. I encourage everyone to check out Apollo's Arrow, an amazing, amazing book. I devoured it. Uh, a reminder, you can use the code WILLAHMED to get 15% off your Whoop membership, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. Check us out on social at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. If you're looking for more podcasts on COVID-19, on the coronavirus, check out episode 66. That was with Nicholas Christakis from March. Check out episode 67 on respiratory rate and the benefits of measuring respiratory rate during this crazy time. Episode 71, in which we interview a number of WHOOP members who got COVID-19 and how it affected their data. Episode 79, in which we talk about the COVID Resilience Project using WHOOP data and demographic surveys to better understand the impact of this virus. Episode 80, interviewing Nick Watney, professional golfer who used WHOOP to predict that COVID-19 was in his system. Episode 81, which is a recap on respiratory rate. So there's a lot of good COVID-19 content on the Whoop podcast. I encourage you all to check it out. And in the meantime, uh, stay healthy and stay green. <laughs>